This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Welcome to the Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore, because life's just better with a book. Today we're looking at a non-fiction autobiography. It's called Personal History by Catherine Graham, about the owner of the Washington Post. She was recently played by Meryl Streep in the movie The Post. Hey, Natasha. Hi, how are you doing? Not bad. Now, why did you pick this one up? Well, I saw the movie, The Post, and anybody played by Meryl Streep is someone you want to know more about. So she was fabulous. Um, The movie, for those who haven't seen it, you know, it was Oscar nominated and stuff. There was a bit of buzz about it. Tom Hanks was Um, in it. Yeah, that's right. Bunch of people that we like. Um, And it's about the publication of the Pentagon Papers, which were these secret government papers about the Vietnam War that came out. And there was big drama about um, them being published by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And the the government took them to court to try and shut it down. It was a big kind of uh, free speech, freedom of the media kind Mm -hmm. of issue, Mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of feeling a bit more relevant these days as well. Yes, absolutely. But it was also, so she's an amazing character because she was basically, she was the publisher and the owner of the Washington Post at this time um, and very much the only woman in this kind of man's world Mm. in a lot of ways and for decades. Um, And so I kind of got interested in her. I heard someone, someone told me about this book, this memoir she'd written um, and a story from it where um, they used to have these dinner parties in Washington. So obviously, you know, she's very socially connected um, connected in Washington, D.C. And they'd have these dinner parties with all the kind of politicians and journalists and um, well-connected people and their wives. And up until, you know, even the... 1970s, they would have this custom of after dinner, the women would retire to another room um, as though it's, you know, Jane Austen, and the men would talk politics and, you know, important things in the world. Um, And she, who's like running the Washington Post and has a whole bunch of work to do, she's a bit like, well, if I'm going to retire with the women and talk about fashion, actually, I kind of need to go home and do some work Mm. um, at this one particular dinner party. Um, she said this and the host was really offended and he was like, oh, well, no, 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 let's just, why don't, why don't, why doesn't everyone stay together at the end? And so it actually, because of her objection on mm. this evening, and she wasn't trying to kind of change a the social world. custom, yeah. but it kind of started being phased out at that point because she was this anomaly in a man's world. And you really get that feeling in the movie that, like, um, it's very much shot as though here's this one woman in a sea of men, in a room of men, in a meeting full of men, uh, and how she kind of deals with that. So I wanted to know more about her. And so so you didn't know much when you picked up this book? Nope, I didn't know anything. Um, and actually I didn't know that much about a lot of the things that are covered. So obviously I'd seen the movie about the Pentagon Papers, but it's also Watergate. I didn't know that much about Watergate. Um, and... You know, she and her husband and her family have a lot to do with politics throughout that era. She mixed with some quite famous people, didn't she? Yeah, loads. So, I mean, and from when she's quite young, you know, she met Einstein as a teenager. Wow. Um, She was good friends with Truman Capote. Um, There's this, like, time where she's having lunch with Truman Capote and Harper Lee in New York. Um, (laughs) After her husband dies, she dates people like, you know, Henry Kissinger and Adlai Stevenson, who was... Um, the Democratic uh, nominee for president a couple of times. Um, so, and she she tells it in a very kind of understated, down to earth, matter of fact sort yeah. of way. Yeah. Um, and so it's really engaging to read to be like, your life is crazy, but it sounds so normal when you tell it. Wow. So, what was the most interesting part of the book for you? 
Oh, there were so many parts for me that um, it's hard to say because everything from like her her upbringing in this very wealthy family, but her not really realizing that she's wealthy, and also Jewish and not really realizing that she's Jewish um, because her father was Jewish. Um, through to kind of the politics and being a woman um, thrust into this job and trying to figure out over decades whether her male colleagues are kind of condescending to her because she doesn't really know what she's doing despite being the boss. So she's kind of learning the rope still and that's what she thinks for a long time and it takes her a long time to disentangle, well, how much is because of my inexperience and how much is because I'm a woman? Um, and kind of getting clued into women's movement and, you know, what she should be doing as a woman with this power in the she, situation. She also had some real tragedy in her life, didn't she? Yes, that's right. And she particularly, it's very honest about her marriage. So her husband, um, who you obviously get the feeling that she adored um, and that they loved each other very much, but she doesn't kind of sweep under the carpet the difficulties of their marriage, that he was quite, he undermined her confidence a lot and put her down a lot. But also he um, had manic depression, was not well understood. It took a long time to be diagnosed. It wasn't well dealt with. Um, And he killed himself in the end. And so, you know, that whole kind of the saga of, um, dealing with that illness over many years and trying to figure out what was going on um, and the toll that that took on her and the family as well. So there's just a lot of elements to this that you're like, all of this is fascinating and seeing it from the inside, seeing how, you know, different people live. And who did you think would enjoy this book then? I kind of think everybody, <laughs> but <laughs> I often say that. Um, maybe especially if you're interested in media, or journalism, um, if you're a writer, if you're interested in feminism um, and women in the workplace, this kind of goes back 50 years, 60 years and looks at what it was like for those kind of pioneers. Um, If you're interested in politics, yeah, any of those kinds of things. Or just if you're interested in people's lives Mm. and what they're like, people whose lives are quite different from you. And there are just so many moments in it where there are these great anecdotes. So let me... um, kind of read you just one little bit Mm -hmm. about this. So this is about JFK, actually, and a conversation that he had. So, you know, she and her husband were friends with Jack Kennedy and Jackie and uh, with uh, Lyndon Johnson and Lady Bird and, you know, a bunch of presidents and so on. Because she was also close to Adelaide Stevenson, who was another kind of democratic presidential candidate, Um, there's this great conversation that JFK has with someone about Adelaide, about how women really love him and really get on well with him. And JFK is asking one of his, one of the people who works for him, you know, why is that? I can't get on with women the way that he does, even though JFK was really charming and women did love him. This other guy says, Mr. President, I'm happy to say that for once you have asked me a question I'm prepared to answer, one that I can answer truthfully and accurately. While you both love women, Adelaide also likes them, and women know the difference. They all respond to a kind of message that comes across from him when he talks to them. He conveys the idea that they are intelligent and worth listening to. He cares about what they're saying and what they've done, and that's really very fetching. The president's response was, well, I don't say you're wrong, but I'm not sure I can go to those lengths. Wow. <laughs> so you just have these kind to of To actually listen of to people and respect them yes, is going to as length. people. 
Yes, that is certainly an insight. Well, thanks, Natasha. Now, moving on to a sci-fi classic, I, Robot, by Isaac Asimov, a story which has had a huge influence on sci-fi writers. It's been referenced in episodes of Star Trek, Futurama and Doctor Who. Natasha, robots, I think, like, they're really just starting to emerge into everyday life in 2018. But this was written back in 1950. So how did Isaac Asimov envisage the robots of the future? I think this is one of the things that's most interesting about this book, actually, is because we think of robots as such a, you know, still a futuristic thing for us, really, like Mm. robots that are doing more than, you know, vacuum the floor or whatever. Um, But robots as imagined 70 years ago are actually very different from how we write about them now. So in a way, they're way more... It's, it's way not way more optimistic the way that he writes about these mm. robots. Like as if they're um, going to be really helpful or... Well, kind of really helpful but really normal, like kind of engineering problems. Um, so he has this vision of the future where, you know, humans are doing mining on other planets and, you know, there's kind of a robot corporation. Like I think just the way that we write about robots in sci-fi now is often very apocalyptic. Oh, yeah, um, they're going to take over. Yeah. And artificial if, intelligence is going to destroy us. Yeah. So that paranoia is not really there. So it's these. It's a series of stories, this book, um, and they were gathered together into one kind of overarching narrative in the volume I, Robot. And he is thinking about the ethical implications of if you have these very incredibly intelligent and capable robots that humans have made and then how do we interact with them and what's the morality of that? Uh, what will consciousness mean for them? But I feel like whenever we imagine that, we go, the the robots are going to revolt and kill us all. They're going to take over. We're going to treat them terribly. Or, you know, like we picture war. But Whereas like, why is- shouldn't we treat them terribly? They're robots. Well, yeah. They I don't mean, have, he- you know, human life. Well, and I mean, Asimov's vision of kind of robotics, which is also a term that he coined um, kind of inadvertently, apparently, not realising it wasn't a word. Mm. Um, It's been foundational for how people thought about robotics kind of and in fiction um, over the last several decades. So he uh, invented what are called the three laws of robotics, um, which people might have heard of. So the first one being that a robot cannot harm a human being can never harm a human being or allow harm to come to one. Um, the second law is that a robot has to obey the orders given it by a human uh, unless that contradicts the first law. And the third one, a robot has to protect its own existence as long as that doesn't conflict with the first two laws. They are such great laws. And if we could make robots under those terms, it w- would be awesome. I, th- I think the thing is, like, the old-fashioned view of robots, like if you think about what a robot looked like, say, in Star Wars, was that they were very much robots and we were aware of their difference all the time, whereas like the modern version of a robot is making it human-like. And so if you were to treat a robot badly, we would be degrading ourselves and our humanity because we would start to get inhumane habits, you know? And I guess the difference a lot in these stories is that for most of them, robots are very separate from mm. humans and yeah. they're kind of their tools. So it's they not that people feelings, are tortured. Right? They're, not, they're not hurting them. Yeah. Um, they're using them, you know, to work in mines and that kind of thing. And so the people who are dealing with them are kind of the engineers who are trying to iron out problems that come up. So those are really interesting 
um, problems and kind of these ethical dilemmas that come up. So there's this one, which is a really interesting story, actually, where they're on some far distant planet and there's this particularly advanced robot, a new one that's been brought out. Um, and the two engineers who are kind of figuring it out, making sure that everything's going smoothly, um, having conversations with this robot and the robot has started to wonder about its own existence. Where did I come from? And when the engineers are like, well, we made you, the robot goes, look, that's not possible. I don't believe you. That makes no sense because you're these kind of flabby, fragile creatures and I'm amazing. <laughs> like right. it knows it's more intelligent and more capable than these humans. And so it's completely implausible that the humans created him. Um, and therefore, and then he becomes you know, he starts to reason out this stuff and it becomes this very kind of theological mm. dilemma because they can't convince him that he's created by them and that actually they're from this distant planet Earth where billions of humans live. Um, and it's like, no, 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 no. You expect me to believe that? That makes no sense yes. from everything I've seen. So it obviously raises lots of interesting questions. Are those questions still relevant though? I think they're eternally relevant questions yeah. because you know this is kind of a science fiction book about robots but it's also a book about humans and what makes us human and what we think is goodness and decency in human nature and in human life um so you know one of the final stories is about a robot probably a robot maybe a robot who runs for political office hmm. and People don't know whether he's a robot. They can't tell because robots are so advanced by this point and how distressing that is for everyone. Mm. Um, and it's just a really interesting kind of scenario because, again, it's not some dramatic like, oh, he's an evil robot and he's going to take over the world, which I feel is the unsubtle movie that we would make now. Instead, you know, he's even if he is a robot, he's very decent and intelligent and will do a good job. And so it becomes this sense of like, okay, what do we look for in a politician and why do we have this repulsion to the idea of a, a robot running the world? <laughs> it is a genuine anxiety for children born in this gener generation that, that AI and robots will take over the world and not have their best interests. All right. So just finally, I know you're not a huge um, sci-fi reader, but did you enjoy this and do you think that everyone could enjoy it? I loved it. I thought it was fascinating and, you know, it's short stories. Um, it's easy to get through and it's really well written. I, I feel like it was very snobby of me to be surprised at how well written it was. Uh -huh. I mean, Isaac Asimov is like a total genius and he was – apparently he's written – he wrote like 500 books or something. Okay. Um, he's written books that appear in nine out of the ten Dewey Decimal System classifications. Like wow, he was so incredibly, really, yeah, know, diverse, and... yeah, eclectic in his interests and writings and stuff. And so, yeah, I think it's a classic. Could be a good one good for, for the younger generation to read as well if they are growing up with this fear of <laughs> yes. robots and AI. Thanks, Natasha. Thank you. And now it's time for my pick, Natasha. So Excellent. I want to talk to you about Fools and Mortals by Bernard Cornwall. Now, have you heard of Bernard Bernard Cornwall? I don't think so. Who is that? Okay. Well, he is a prolific author of historical fiction, very much aimed at men. A lot of middle-aged men read him, really? including my husband. <laughs> historical write... fiction for men. Oh, big time. He's wow. really prolific. He's written so many books. Um, but they cover things like the Napoleonic Wars. He's got this series called the Sharp Series about this sort of dapper, you know, con man in the uh, Napoleonic Wars who gets 
through everything by the skin of his teeth. He's written a series about King Arthur. So, you know, very King Arthur. big, sweeping, violent kind of battles and all that kind of thing. This one, though, is something very different because I would never read those other Bernard Cornwall books. But <laughs> this one, and I think you would love it, Natasha. Okay. So it's very much a mainstream book, not one of those niche ones. It's set during Elizabethan times and it follows the younger brother of Will Shakespeare. Oh. So Richard Shakespeare is poor. He's a very handsome player or an actor, um, but he's stuck playing women's parts because (laughs) his brother doesn't treat him very well. He's 10 years younger, so he doesn't get much respect from his brother. He won't give him any decent parts. And all that Richard wants is to play a man, you know, because he's getting older. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and part of this is just a commercial reality because if he keeps playing women, he won't get much work as he gets older. Only young men get to play women's parts. But winter is closing in and in wintertime the theatres um, shut down and so they have no income, right? And at this time a very fancy new theatre is being built on the Thames, um, which is just hugely extravagant. And it has players but it has no plays. And so the scripts of the plays become this really valuable commodity and Richard Shakespeare, as well as being very poor, is an excellent thief. Oh, I see. So I can see where this is going. You can see where this is going. <laughs> and so this new theatre wants Richard to steal his brother's play. Now, the play in question that Will Shakespeare is working on is a new wedding play, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh-huh. And so Richard faces this temptation to, I guess, steal the play and make some money and get a job with the new theatre. But will he do that? Well... So is it about like the brother's relationship or is it about kind of the life of the time or is it about literature? What's the... Oh, my goodness. Well, actually, there's a romance in there as mm. well. It's just a, it's a really vivid portrayal of Elizabethan times, the theatre, the commercial realities of writing plays, the religious politics, the sort of rivalries and ambitions that surrounded the play. But, yeah, at the centre of that is this relationship between Will Shakespeare and his younger brother who never gets a win. He's a bit of an underdog character and uh, you just want him to come out on top at the end but you just don't know if he will. <laughs> yep. And I take it he doesn't subscribe then to the theory that Will Shakespeare's plays were written by somebody else. Well, absolutely not, no. <laughs> and, in fact, one of the ways that Richard gets work is to copy the plays because, of course, they had every copy had to be handmade and then they had to have real security on these plays so they didn't get stolen Wow. Yeah. So it's cool. quite, it's a great insight into Elizabethan theatre. Great. Yeah. And I, would you recommend it? I would highly recommend it. I've listened to it on audiobook, which I think has been fantastic, you know, on long drives. Um, and because of its dramatic nature, look, if you love A Midsummer Night's Dream or if you love any other particular Shakespearean plays, then you learn so much from reading this book. But it's fun and intriguing and you never quite know which way it's going to go. Great. Yeah. So that's called Fools and Mortals by Bernard Cornwall. The books reviewed in this episode of the Hope Book Club are The Autobiography, Personal History by Catherine Graham, the sci-fi classic I, Robot by Isaac Asimov, and the historical fiction novel Fools and Mortals by Bernard Cornwall. Thanks for listening to the Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore, because life's just better with a book. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.